3: Our placement in the evolutionary tree gives a clue, at least, for cataloging ourselves.
4: We are members of the species of bipedal primates from the family Hamididae.
3: The genus, that's genus, not genius, is Homo, and we're the only non-extinct species of that genus.
4: And that species is sapiens. Homo sapiens is wise or knowing man
3: in Latin. And throw in another sapiens because that's our subspecies. We're Homo sapiens sapiens, wise, wise man. Hmm, I really am a wise guy. (laughs) But
4: what makes us Homo sapiens sapiens? Why are
3: human beings unique? On the one hand, you'd think it'd be easy to answer the question of what separates us from other animals. At one time, we claimed it was tool use, but now we know other animals use tools, so... What can it be?
2: Uh, what makes us human, Well, basically we have emotions, feelings, and you know what I'm
3: saying?
4: We have freedom of choice.
3: Freedom of choice, you don't think the animals do.
4: Some end up being caged in we'll
3: zoos. We'll reflect on our past a lot more where animals just grow into and like have the same habits or instinct, format evolution and stuff like that. I think we got style and opposable thumb, and that's <laughs> something
5: dogs and animals yeah, don't, you know? for sure. <laughs> they don't follow orders. We follow a... Uh, Higher power. I'm way flyer than your average animal. The ability
4: to think beyond the box, outside the box.
3: And you don't see too many animals thinking outside their uh, litter box? I don't think so.
1: The ability to pass on more than just
3: basic needs. Yeah, learning.
6: Our brain or something is a little bigger or something. Could think a little
5: more, talk, express ourselves a little more or something. Animals just do.
7: To
4: synthesize creative thoughts through language.
5: Soul. We have a soul.
3: There are many traits and characteristics, both positive and negative, that can be assigned to human beings and that seem to set us apart from the crowd. But are we really different or do we just do things a little better? Part 1 of our two part series What Makes Us Human? Part 1 Our Relationship with Others.
7: listen to the program. You
3: listen
4: Only humans use language, although some people debate that, saying that we've just been too narrow in our definition of language. After all, other animals, such as whales, dolphins and birds,
3: do communicate. So maybe we can say that only people debate the definition of language. Anyway, only humans use verbal and written language to share ideas.
4: And there are lots of theories about how language arose. It's by no means clear just how that happened, but a new theory draws on a sound familiar to anyone who spends a lot of time with kids.
2: Hi, little baby. What are you doing? Look how cute you are. Do you want some more peas? Do you want a little more peas? No? No more peas. Okay. You want to Motherese, you
3: want to perhaps oh, more commonly known touch. as baby talk, is what anthropologist Dean Falk credits with giving rise to human language.
4: Dean Falk specializes in the evolution of the brain and cognition in higher primates and is the author, most recently, of Finding Our Tongues, Mothers, Infants, and the Origins of Language. She says that mothers began talking to their babies when they first began setting their babies down so they could free up their hands to do other things.
0: It's the idea that once our babies lost the ability to cling to their mommies unaided, mommies had to carry them in their arms. And in order to go about their business, to forage for food and and to dig up tubers, that kind of thing, that mothers would occasionally have to set their infants down right next to them. And I believe that opened up vocal communication.
3: So, all right, so our predecessors, our simian predecessors, they didn't have this problem because the infants were able to hold on to mommy without uh, mommy having to do anything. Mommy had all four limbs available?
0: Yes, absolutely. And that's true if you look at the living monkeys and the great apes they all, the infants all hang on to their mommies, and they're happy as clams in high water. There, um, There's not much vocalization going on between mother and infant. There's not really a need for it. And so humans are very, very unusual in that respect.
3: Then th- th- this led to the development of language, uh, according to what you're suggesting here, simply because now these babies could not cling to mom. And so mom needs to get some food or dig up some roots or something, and Puts the baby down? Where does language come into this?
0: Well, first of all, she goes, shh. (laughs) Um, It it, it took a while to get to language, but it opened the vocal communication uh, on both sides. Infants uh, developed, evolved new ways of crying to get their mom's attention, and moms began shushing them and soothing them and began with what we call mother-ease or um, melodic kind of baby talk. Not that they were talking to begin with. They were just making pleasing sounds. But this, I think, was a seed from which language eventually evolved.
3: So what are the characteristics of motherese, other than that it it seems like it's very exaggerated and and very, well, I I would say condescending, but then again, I guess for a baby, uh, they don't know what that means.
0: It's uh, Well, it's expressing emotions. That's one thing. Um, Often love. It is melodic the pitch is higher, it's more sweeping, uh, the melody, it's slower, exaggerated. Uh, the concepts are simple in the here and now, although the baby doesn't get the linguistic meaning initially. But it's uh, very musical.
3: So the story is the mothers have to put the infants down at some point, and to keep the infant from you know going nonlinear, getting very upset, they begin to talk to them, to sing to them, to use motherese. Uh, e- even in the beginning when there was no language, presumably these are just sounds? Yes. Okay. Yes.
0: And babies, for their part, uh, didn't like being put down. They don't today, and they didn't then. And when chimp babies fall off, which is rare, but when they do, they don't like it either, and they whimper. So it's on both sides that this, you know, it's as if voices began to substitute, substitute for the cradling arms of the mother and for the clinging arms and feet of the baby.
3: How is it that sounds and lullabies could evolve into the ability to link symbolic words together? That that sounds to me like it might be much more complex.
0: Well, I think it was very complex. The sounds and the lullabies are basically started out as emotional expressions and communications and probably evolved out of animal calls that were emotional, and through time... Um, and we see this, you know, if we look at the development of a baby today in its first year, it's born without language. At the end of the first year, it's getting it, and it's bootstrapping that on the ease it hears. And um, unconsciously, what moms are doing is initially with a brand-new baby, they're expressing love. As the baby gets older, they tailor the communication and it becomes more instructive. If you see a baby crawling for that light light socket, it's like, "No. I mean that's Mother Eve, and the baby gets it. And then uh, later, towards the end of the first year, uh, it's helping to bootstrap language women or or others, too, are unconsciously stressing uh, things the infant needs to learn in order to become
3: linguistic. I'm talking with Dean Falk, an anthropologist at Florida State University and the author of Finding Our Tongue, Mothers, Infants, and the Origins of Language. Uh Dean, you've stressed the fact that this motherese, and I have to say that I hadn't heard the term before, but now at least I, I know what to call it when I hear it, and I hear it all the time, mm-hmm. particularly on airplanes in the seat behind me. Uh, you, said, you mentioned the fact that it's musical. And so, you know, that addresses a question that I've thought of, and I think many people have. Where did music come from? What's the survival value of music? Why do we have it and the uh, other uh, animals do not? Uh, so, do you really think that that's why we, you know, are musical because of this this uh, early motherese?
0: Yeah, that's such a good question because there are arguments that say music, you know, had nothing to do with anything. It's just kind of a wonderful frivolous thing that had no function. And then um, others that say, no, it, it preceded language. I actually think that music and language evolve together. Music is basically a function of the right side of our brains, and language is a function, basically, of the left side. There's some overlap, but that's a basic dichotomy. And in both, we process complex noises. And so I think the two evolve together, and what you're getting with the music is the communication of emotional content, which is the language of music. It, It is emotion. And with language, you're getting the linguistic and symbolic, and when we communicate, we don't do one or the other. As we're speaking now, we have tone of voice, which is the music in our speech, and what, what that conveys to the listener is uh, understanding of the undertones, the nuances, and that can be tremendously important in communication. So I think the two evolve together, you know, to underscore emotion on the one hand and then symbolic on the other, complex noises.
3: Well, well that's interesting. Now, let me just say there, there's, of course, the whole question of how we evolve language. That's, I presume, rather difficult to study because, you know, it's sort of hard to get sort of a fossil record of language, I suppose. Uh, But there there does seem to be a difference of opinion. There's a gentleman who, uh, for example, has written about how he thinks that the fact that we had to forage for meat and, and since that's complicated, it required communication that that led to language. And you're saying it's because moms put their babies down yeah. occasionally. I, I, I can't help but note that, that, you know, this was a guy who said it's meat. And you, of course, are a woman and saying it's moms talking to their kids. I, yeah. I, <laughs> is there anything in that? I mean, is it is it really so uncertain how we got language?
0: Um, well, you know, if um, you need to look at evidence. And if you look at evidence from the fossil record... And look at how children acquire language today. And, in fact, there was a sign language, uh, Nicaraguan sign language for the deaf, that's been invented in the last several decades. And it's a real language. It's completely linguistic with all the formal properties. And it was kids that invented it. And if you look at non-human primates who've invented cultural kinds of activities, the uh, Japanese macaques that wash their sweet potatoes and salt them, for instance, come to mind, it's often a female inventor. And then the the offspring, the children that develop it before it's passed on to future generations. So there's a lot of evidence that converges, I think, on the uh, hypothesis to do with mothers, because after all, what's evolution about? It's about who lives and who dies. That's what natural selection is about. And mothers were, were have always been crucial for the survival of their offspring. The male kind of hunting hypothesis is an old traditional one. But the thing about hunting is it wasn't there at the beginning. It Uh, The the big game hunting, that's relatively recent. That would be Homo erectus, perhaps 2 million years ago. And I think the other evidence supports a much earlier beginning or seeding of what eventually became our first languages.
3: All right, Dean. Well, I want to thank you for speaking with me and, and, and by the way, giving me a whole new tolerance for uh, women that are cooing their babies because now I realize it might lead to the next American Idol. So... Yes,
0: <laughs> and it's not going to hurt the baby. Studies show it actually is beneficial in terms of their language acquisition.
3: Thank you, Dean.
0: Thank you for having me on your program.
4: Dean Falk is an anthropologist at Florida State University and the author of Finding Our Tongues, Mothers, Infants, and the Origins of Language.
3: Coming up, why your brain craves company and our complex relationship with chimpanzees. It's what makes us human on Are We Alone? Science radio for thinking species on any world.
1: Hey, you talking to me? Oh, wait, no, I'm talking to you. Hey, you don't have to be human to join Team
4: SETI, which makes my brother-in-law Joey eligible. (laughs) No, I'm kidding, folks although Team SETI does welcome all new members. It's a way to help out the scientists at the SETI Institute who are trying to understand what makes us human on this planet and whether there could be intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. If it is intelligent, I'm telling you, it don't look nothing like Joey. When my sister finds these guys, I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, joining Team SETI is easy to do at SETI.org. When you do become a member, send an email to the radio show are at SETI.org, and the radio staff, Seth, Molly, Barbara, and that handsome devil Gary, will send you a photo of humanity in all its glory under poor fluorescent lighting. You heard me, SETI.org
1: and are at SETI.org. Now we're talking.
4: Humans want to connect with one another, something that begins in infancy, as we just heard.
3: So it makes sense that part of what makes us human are our relationships with others. We're a social bunch. We like to interact, mingle, hobnob, pal around, fraternize, rub elbows, rub shoulders, co-mingle, and hang with our homies. To facilitate this endless social blitz, Homo sapiens has created myriad ways to build connections beyond the individual. Families, organizations, cities, renaissance fairs. Why? Because they have survival value. Isolation is not good
4: for our species. University of Chicago psychologist John Cassiopo and his team are the first to use fMRI, or functional magnetic resonance imaging, which looks at blood flow, to find out what's happening in the brain when we're isolated and lonely. It turns out it can make us sick. While many animals, even fruit flies, need the support of social groups, humans are unique in that they can perceive loneliness even in a crowd.
3: And John Cassioppo has found that being isolated too long is as harmful to our health as smoking and obesity. We've evolved to crave the company of others.
5: Go to any park, watch people walk along, and you'll notice that they're walking at different paces, they'll be swinging in their arms differently, clearly two different individuals walking. They meet in the middle, they walk off together, all of a sudden they're synchronized. Neither one tried to do that. But they walk off as a unit, and the extent to which they walk off in a synchronized fashion that develops... Rapport, They like the other individual more. All of that is automatic. No one's trying to do it. Well, so the point of this is that humans
4: are wired to be social animals. We really respond when other humans are around us. When we're not around other humans and we're isolated, it has consequences on us. And the work that you've done suggests that it actually has profound consequences on our health.
5: Yes, and I'd like to just back up a moment and say other social animals, when they're physically isolated from members of their species, suffer pathophysiology as well. They die sooner. Uh, they show various anomalies. But the reason I brought that up was other social animals, it's the objective isolation. In humans, it's not as much the objective isolation as the perceived isolation. So uh, a rider... Uh, might need to go into solitude, might need to go into an area where they're isolated so that they have that block of time to exercise their craft. But that writer, with the readers in mind and the various audiences and perhaps colleagues who help them generate the material, all the interview material, is anything but alone while they sit there and write that paper. And so they may not feel isolated at all. On the other hand, college students incoming freshmen who leave friends and family behind for the first time are physically with more people during that first couple of weeks than when they were at home. But that's a period when many, many uh, kids feel terribly isolated. So it's not the physical, it's the perceived isolation that turns out to be important.
4: And this gets to the question, what the health consequences are, or what what sorts of stresses it puts on the animal, in this case the human animal, when you are isolated for a long period of time,
5: when you're lonely. So chronic loneliness is associated with the variety of physiological costs and mental costs. One of the physiological costs is increased vascular resistance. This is the resistance of blood flow throughout the body. Uh, Feeling lonely leads you to feel more threatened. At a very implicit level, one feels like there are social threats. Uh, An organism, an individual who's by himself in the savanna is going to have a difficult time surviving. This vascular resistance is one such reaction to that.
4: Otherwise known as high blood pressure.
5: Oh, no. Vascular resistance can lead to high blood pressure over longer periods of time. But the reason it's not high blood pressure per se is blood pressure is a critically important physiological endpoint, so it's regulated. There are homeostatic mechanisms. Over time, however the high vascular resistance leads to damage in the vasculature, and that then can lead to elevations in in blood pressure. And that's exactly what we find.
4: So it's a real stressor for the organism to be isolated because it's equated with danger. What is the danger with being isolated?
5: It is the evolutionary danger of trying to survive uh, alone in a very dangerous world. Well, you've actually looked at the brains of people
4: who were feeling lonely. They had this perceived loneliness. And I wonder if you could just summarize what you found when you looked at these individuals.
5: Well, one of the things we've seen in behavioral studies is that lonely individuals walking across, at least lonely young adults walking across the normal day of events, have positive social interactions. In fact, more positive social interactions than negative social interactions. When we looked at the frequency of such interactions among lonely and non-lonely individuals, In young adults, we find the same number of positive and negative social interactions. They don't differ in the number. Where they differ is that lonely individuals don't find the positive interactions to be very uplifting, and they find the negative social interactions to be more toxic than the non-lonely individuals.
4: Just to clarify that, because you'd think that if they interacted with people, that would actually give them a boost and alleviate some of the feelings of loneliness. Yes.
5: Well, they do find it rewarding, but it's not as uplifting. It's really quite striking. This is a case where they have an opportunity for a, a respite, a, a, a bit of nourishment from their everyday interactions with people. And the lonely are not as nourished by that positive social interaction as the, as the non-lonely. So we did a brain imaging study where uh, obviously they're lying in a magnet so we can't have them have positive and social interactions per se. So we showed pictures uh, that were very pleasant and had people in them or objects in them. And what we found was both produce, show a ventral striatal activation, that is looking at something positive, so looking at something rewarding, leads to an activation of a basic reward area of the brain. I
4: think you have to repeat that area of the brain. What was that called?
5: It's called the ventral striatal area. It's a a large region uh, of the limbic lobe that underlies reward. What we found was that's The non-lonely individuals showed greater ventral striatal activation when looking at positive social pictures than lonely individuals. So they were gaining even more nourishment, if you will. They derived more reward, even though they didn't rate the picture any more possibly than the non-lonely individual.
4: They were not lonely individuals. They were used to having people around them or they felt like they had company. And so when they saw other people, they responded in a positive way. Is that right. a you good can summation? S-
5: you can essentially see it as when they see someone else in a positive circumstance, they, too, feel uplifted by that event. If they felt lonely and feel threatened by social uh, objects or s- other people, then seeing somebody in a positive circumstance doesn't quite have the same uplifting effect on, on me and my brain, if you will. I
4: wonder if you could say more about that implied threat. That's not obvious, that if you're lonely, that then being around other people or um, social activity is considered a threat. How is, that, how is that true?
5: It really is from what loneliness represents, and that is this need to reconnect, but also a danger from others who have disconnected you or from whom you've become disconnected. And so it's this interesting combination of motives that you... Have one to kind of protect yourself, and the second to reconnect. So both of those are operating.
4: And you're saying that this really had an adaptive um, advantage when we're on the savanna. We'll just use the savanna yeah. as the scene, however many tens of thousands of years ago, that this is actually a useful advantage, adaptive advantage to have.
5: Yes, uh, the the adaptability comes from avoiding falling into groups that, in fact, would harm you, uh, being somewhat suspicious of new groups that you're trying to join, and yet still going in and trying to join them. So you've got this interesting mixture. Uh, Another feature that we have found, uh, and others have found, is loneliness contributes to depressive symptomatology. In longitudinal research, we found that loneliness today predicts depression next year above and beyond what's predictable by today's level of depression. Now, that sounds kind of curious until, again, you think in evolutionary time, Depression is also associated with drawing back. So if I get rejected by a group, I'm not as likely to just force my way back into the group, which could be at my own peril. But it's also associated with a number of social signals, expressions of sadness, crying, articulation, so that if there's which you can view as a call for help, a call for connection. If there is anyone left in that group who would take sympathy on me and come and be my friend then that's a call that would likely bring that about so you can see this interesting interplay if you will on the savannah of trying to reconnect being somewhat uh, hostile and suspicious and yet also depressed in a way that would call forth assistance if any were able to provide that
4: well and and finally i wonder if breaking this um this trend of social isolation is particularly difficult now because from everything you said you have this ancient neurological system, brain system, adaptive system, running straight into modern technology. And I wonder if the prospects are good or what's going to happen to human beings. I mean, it's all, we can say that we need to be interacting more with people, but but people are continuously finding substitutions for face-to-face interaction. So what is your prediction for what's going to happen?
5: I'm an optimist by nature. And so my prediction is that the social networking will become richer and that we will find ways of using that uh, social networking to amplify our face-to-face interactions. And I'll give you a case in point. Uh, Let's say that a college student had great friends in high school, goes off to college. Now, all too many of us lose contact with those wonderful high school friends, and we see them perhaps after 40 years at a 40 your high school reunion. But if you stay in contact with the net about kind of content what's going on in your life what's going on in my life and then we go back to that city and see each other then we can pick up the friendship where it was before we left. And so that's a that's a way in which you're not replacing the face to face you're enriching the face and face you're maintaining the nature the high quality of that relationship even at distances.
4: Thank you very much.
5: Thank you very much.
3: John Cassioppo is the director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago and co-author of Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Connection. Well, Molly, while some traits stand out as uniquely human, like the use of language, others seem to be just matters of degree.
4: That's right. We just heard about loneliness, but what was human was the kind of loneliness we feel.
3: Yeah, well, so for that reason, some researchers, such as anthropologist Katherine Denning and biologist Lori Marino, are just not overly impressed with the argument that humans stand apart from their animal brethren. Catherine Denning says it's all in how you approach the question of what makes us human.
6: It's been hypothesized, for example, that tool use, bipedalism, language, uh, all of these different things, that these are the, the final attributes that make us human. Or we can ask, well, is it just some kind of special combination of attributes that many other creatures share that make us human? But As our ignorance about our fellow inhabitants of Earth has receded, we've realized plenty of other species use tools. We just didn't always recognize them as such. So a big part of this question about what makes us human is just, why are we asking, where are we situating ourselves, and who is it? That we want to exclude? Because if we track that question back through history, it wasn't so very long ago that other members of Homo sapiens sapiens were being labeled non-human. So it's a profoundly loaded question.
3: what, what does that mean that there's no answer? Uh, Laurie, surely we could, we could point to our brain to body size ratio, right? We have a, a pretty high one, higher than anybody else. Doesn't that make us... In some sense, I mean.
2: Well, actually, you know, we don't have the highest brain-to-body size ratio. We uh, we have uh, the highest encephalization quotient, and the very fact that we've decided that that metric is so important and is also the one that puts us on top should just make us a little bit. Wary.
3: Well, you mean we've self-defined ourselves as being- oh, absolutely,
2: absolutely. We love the measures that make us look good, and and we don't heed the measures that don't make us look so good. I mean, since the time of Aristotle and before that, we have, we have had a worldview that uh, humans are on top of nature and above all other creatures. And uh, when you look at the record of life on this planet, it is not a scale or a ladder or anything like that. It's it's a bushy tree.
3: But But wouldn't I be tempted as a human to say, well, this is a bit disingenuous, because clearly, looking at the effect on the planet, looking at our cities and everything else, our technology, our science, this radio show, right, isn't it a bit disingenuous to say, well, we're just part of the animal kingdom and, you know, there's really not all that much difference because no, we, it's we feel... it's <laughs>
6: not. It's not disingenuous at all. No disrespect intended to the radio show. But if you're, if you're talking about, you know, our influence on, on the planet, um, yeah, we are part of a big system. And if, if we're trying to think about the single most influential organism, we might want to look at phytoplankton. <laughs>
2: wow. Or
3: E.
6: coli. Well, I'm happy to
3: look at them, but on in- the other insects. hand... Insects.
6: Yeah, well, yes. and on that subject of E. coli, well, what does make us human? Are we, in fact, mostly human or are we, in fact, mostly commensal cells of other organisms that are living with and inside us? Uh,
3: but but isn't that a bit like saying, well, you know, there's really no difference between a... Uh a desktop computer and uh, you know in a radio or some other very or a light bulb for that matter i mean it 's all just a bit of electronics
6: what what the queries here are designed to do is reorient our thinking and ask, well, why are we asking what makes us human Because my assumption here is that when we 're taking apart the question of well what makes us human that part of our ultimate interest is what might an intelligent life form elsewhere be like? Would they be similar to us? would they be distinct from us, and in order to even approach those questions, what we have to start doing is. Is decentering ourselves as human beings. And instead of asking, well, what makes us so completely special, we have to start asking, well, actually, what do we have in common with everything else?
2: I would agree. I mean, in the neurosciences, we have yet to find a single characteristic or feature of the human brain that signals that it is in some way qualitatively different than the brains of others. Our brain is, in many respects, a typical great ape brain. The fact that we may not like that to be the case doesn't mean that it isn't the case. So we have to be very careful. We have a psychological investment in putting ourselves outside of the rest of nature, but that should make us, once again, quite wary that that might not be reality.
3: Well, it it brings me to mind of when Einstein died, and they, you know, they, they took apart his skull, <laughs> took out his brain, took a look at it, and they didn't see anything that looked very different, actually, between his brain and the brain of his next-door neighbor. Now, maybe they just couldn't recognize what was different about it, but I, I don't think that many people would quibble with the fact that, well, Einstein really was different from your average uh, homo sapien.
2: Well, the question is, was he qualitatively different or just on the end of a spectrum of gifts and talents that are so extremely different than the average that they're seen as somehow unique?
3: Lori Marino, Catherine Denning, thank you for uh, being human enough to uh, withstand this interview.
2: <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> thank
7: you. <laughs>
4: Lori Marino is a biologist at Emory University. Catherine Denning is an anthropologist at York University. Well, what makes us human may indeed be the need to ask the question of what makes us human.
3: Yeah, well, humans <laughs> seem to need to know what separates them from the rest of the animal kingdom, especially other primates, but no other creatures do this. I mean, I don't hear birds asking, what makes us birds, unless Descartes was a bird.
4: So some of what makes us human may be found in how we regard other creatures. One of our more complicated relationships is with our closest living relatives, chimpanzees. They're members of that same family, Hamididae, and share at least 96% of their DNA with us. Yet despite our fascination and connection with chimps and other apes, we fail to respect them for what they are, says writer Charles Siebert.
3: He spent time at a chimp retirement home, the Center for Great Apes, run by Patty Reagan, where apes who were in the entertainment business and other pets live out their golden years. It was there that Charles met a chimp named Roger, a former cellist with Ringling Brothers, and the Center for Great Apes is also the setting for his book, The Wachula Woods Accord, about our relationship with animals and what it says about our need to define ourselves as something other than mere beasts.
4: Charles, your story is about many chimps, but really the focus is on a chimp named Roger who was a cellist in Ringling Brothers' All Chimp Orchestra. How did Roger come to the Center for Great Apes?
1: When uh, Roger's trainer at Ringling Brothers got ill and uh, eventually he died and he was just no longer able to uh, take care of Roger and his wife decided to hand Roger over and Patty Reagan the owner of Center for Great Apes got custody of him and so he eventually moved down there to the Center for Great Apes with an orangutan named uh, Radcliffe who was also a uh, well he was a roadside zoo Attraction, So that's how we ended up there.
4: Now, Roger used to be a cellist in the Ringling Brothers All Chimp Orchestra. And and the other chimps that were there, had they had show business careers at one time as well?
1: Yeah, it was rather sort of a memorable. My first tour of the place, Patty was taking me around. This was in the course of researching a story from the New York Times about chimps in captivity. And someone said, you have to go up to Wachula, see Patty's place. It's it's really a beautiful sanctuary. I, I call it a retirement home. It's as nice a sanctuary as you can make for for trapped animals that really belong in the wild. So it's sort of like a series of geodesic domes, caged, domed-in forest. And when she took me around that first day, I mean, she'd stop in front of the closure and she'd say, well, do you remember the chimps and the trunk monkey commercial? And and then and then there they are waving at you. And do you remember the chimps and the careerbuilder.com commercial? And this one pulled down his pants and sat on the copy machine. I mean, they all had their... Their are little dossiers in history, you know, so there are some big stars there, nothing on the line of Cheetah, you know, who lives in a retirement home on the other coast.
4: People may not realize, or certainly I hadn't stopped to think of how often we have used chimps and orangutans in and, and showbiz and movies and so forth, but it's quite common.
1: It's quite common, and what people also don't realize, which I didn't realize in, in, until I went down there and spoke to Patty, these apes be it chimps or orangutans, they have a very brief viability as actors, really. It's from sort of age six months up to about six or seven, and then after which they get really too big and strong and willful to use. So really, for a few laughs, we end up consigning an animal, animals that live to, what, sometimes 60 years. You know, they spend the majority of their lives, just for a few of our laughs, in jail, even though I shouldn't call Patty Space jail because about as nice a job as you can do, the best compromise you can make. But still, they're in captivity, and there's no way to dignify an animal in captivity, ultimately.
4: When you first saw Roger, he was staring at you. And, and for anyone who's actually looked at a chimp into the face of a chimp, it can be quite unnerving, because it does look like you're looking into the face of a human being. You'll take umbrage with that, I'm sure, later in the interview. But it, it looks like you're looking into the face of another creature who recognizes you who, and whose face looks similarly to your own.
1: Exactly. That's a universal experience, it seems to me, for any human who locks eyes with a chimpanzee. You know that, or you sense that there's a you in there. So there's a deep aspect of humanity um, or humanness, or fellow <laughs> apeness, whatever.
4: You spent the night sitting outside of Roger's cage. Is that right? All night?
1: I spent four or five days with Roger, but there was this one night when they, the chimps woke each other up there the chimps there often have nightmares about or sometimes they'll be frightened by uh, an animal getting in an enclosure like a snake or a fox or a squirrel or something anything could set them off and then on that night they all woke up and I sort of I woke up and was unable to go back and I thought to go out and just look at Roger at that hour you know sort of when we would be by ourselves.
3: Hold it right there. We'll return to Molly's conversation with Charles Siebert. It's Are We Alone? Science radio for thinking species on AnyWorld.
5: From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We now return to Molly's conversation with Charles Siebert about our relationship with chimps and other animals.
4: Earlier, I said that when one looks into the face of a chimp, you feel like you're looking into the face of another human, and I thought that you might object to that. Do you?
1: No, I actually don't. I, I, um,
4: and I, and I say that because aren't you opposed to us humanizing these animals?
1: Yeah, I'm opposed to anthropomorphizing, but I don't think to say that is to anthropomorphize. I think it's to, I think it should be well done. Uh, we are allowed to do the kind of conjecturing that's been called anthropomorphizing, we have being allowed that now by science of all things, which is to say that we now know that there's an equivalent, if not exactly equal, but a, a similar kind of complexity in even their brain structure of, let's say, chimps, of elephants, of dolphins. Uh, we know that there's sort of parallel days and complexities going on there, to the extent that it's no longer essential to know exactly what an animal like Roger is thinking what a chimp day is or an elephant day is or a dolphin day. We can know that they have very complex days and that those days are woundable in the sense that ours can be if we're compromised in certain ways.
4: And yet you say that we do—we lose something when we continually compare chimpanzees to ourselves. We deny them what you say, their otherness. We create these beings, you write about this, that are not human or fully ape. There's something called humanese, as in chimpanzees and humans blended together. Humanese.
1: Humanzees. Oh,
4: humanzees. Yeah.
1: There's one thing about sitting idly by and doing the kind of protracted conjecturing I do There's another in taking an animal out of its rightful place, being the jungle, and putting it in uh, human clothing, raising it as a child, as people have done, and making them play cellos for our amusement. And then, because they get too big and strong, having to consign them to another 40, 50 years in captivity, and doing it in a way that, you know, if you raise an animal, if you you rest an animal like this from its mother usually you have to kill the mother to get an animal like this unless it's born in captivity, and then raise it exclusively around humans. Well, you, you're creating a human Z because these animals come to prefer us even to their own kind.
4: Do you think that our attitude towards chimps reflects some kind of deep discomfort we have with our connection to them and our connection to the animal world?
1: I do indeed. I couldn't put it better. I, I feel my whole book in a way is an extended um, among the things that is that it is i feel it i wanted it to be an extended meditation on that very discomfort which is a long standing one i think human beings are deeply troubled by their own or our own animality rather than being ennobled by that connection with all biology we feel we have long felt debased by it i mean think of the way the chimps were first portrayed they were very put off by the presence of a near human. And so what they immediately rendered them sort of uh, mythic creatures, they were sort of half-man, half-forest nymph, they were rapers of women, they were wild things, they became like sort of living cautionary tales in mythology against our own bestial nature. You see, humanity has always had this notion that we are a part, we're special, we're anointed by a god. So animals make us feel ungodly.
4: Well, I wonder if there was one moment in particular of your evening with Roger that that stands out in your mind.
1: Yeah, uh I I was uh I could go off <laughs> to sit opposite someone like Roger that long. Um there were so many mo- moments where if Roger felt that my attentions were wandering or one at one time I I even dozed off a little, he would actually get a little hurt and he would stand up sometimes and just He'd leave and go to a far corner of his enclosure and sit there and then sort of wait to come back as though <laughs> as though he now deemed me worthy again, and there's a dangerous bit of conjecturing on my part. But but he, he would do that. But Roger had a – this is how specific their minds are and how intelligent they are. They have very specific memories, chimpanzee, that can go back to their early youth. And if there was something traumatic or upsetting to them, they remember everything about it and very specifically – and Patty said to me that whenever he saw a man, a certain man, sort of of my very build, about six foot, six foot two, broad-shouldered, but a man with white hair, which I don't yet have, he would go into fits of screaming rage and, and sit up long time afterwards, you know, sort of rocking back and forth, very upset. She didn't know what, what was the cause of that, but she said it's clearly something from his past, Some, someone who upset Roger or who he gave him nightmares, whatever the cause of it was. So part of the tension of being with Roger was wondering whether if something I did, maybe reaching out to try to touch his finger or whatever, might set off that kind of bad memory. But something else happened, the, quite the opposite of that, where I felt by the end of my stay that we came to some sort of mutual, perhaps, recognition
4: well Charles the name of your book is The Wachula Woods Accord Towards a New Understanding of Animals. What is the Wachula Woods Accord?
1: I wanted to call it U-Man-Z, after these hybrid creatures that I conjecture we sort of make out of these animals. It was somehow decided that that title was not attractive. And so I started thinking about what else to call it. And in a very fanciful way near the end of the book I had mentioned to Roger after I felt that we came to some sort of understanding that I would make known the moments of our n- night together and this understanding we'd come to, and I said maybe it would amount to a kind of treatise or manifesto on behalf of all captive animals like himself. And then I sort of fancifully said we could even call it the Wachula Woods Accord, and the the facility where he is is in the woods of Wachula. So I therefore called it the Wachula Woods Accord, and the actual accord, I'm sorry, I'd have to paraphrase myself, but I, I tried to give it an actual phrasing, and it was something that the degree to which we human beings will finally stop abusing other animals and ourselves will be measured by the degree to which we understand that we are a part of all other animals.
4: Charles, thank you very much for talking to us.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure.
3: Charles Siebert is the author of The Wachula Woods Accord, Towards a New Understanding of Animals.
4: The human relationship with chimps, as we've heard, is one of our closest and most complex.
3: We share a lot with the apes. And now scientists have discovered one more thing we have in common.
4: (laughs) This is one matter that is a laughing matter. At the University of Portsmouth in the UK, researchers had a serious question, when and how did laughter evolve, and a playful assignment, tickle human babies, orangutans, chimps and bonobos to find out. The primates couldn't keep a straight face. They all broke out giggling.
3: Now the leader of the research team, biologist Marina Davila Ross, then traced the relationship between the ha-ha's on the evolutionary tree. It turns out that the funny bone is not unique to humans. So Marina, you did a study into the evolution of laughter, and I understand that some chimps and gorillas were literally tickled pink to help out.
7: Yes. We tickled also orangutans and bonobos and humans, and also a siamang, and um, wanted to have these recordings because we were interested in the evolution of laughter, and we wanted to find out whether laughter has a pre-human basis.
3: Okay, so uh, you you tickled all these creatures, and you analyzed the sounds that they made, because uh, apparently they all made sounds. They didn't just lie back and not say anything, right?
7: Yes, they were vocalizing. Everybody was vocalizing differently. Some are big laughers, some are less strong laughers.
3: Did you find any sort of relationship between the sounds made by these different species?
7: We used the acoustic data to understand the evolutionary relationship of these vocalizations, and we found that our resulting tree matched the evolutionary tree that is well established from genetic research. That's why we could conclude that all of these vocalizations share a common ancestry. In other words, that apes also can laugh. And then we took the acoustic data to find out what kind of evolutionary changes did occur throughout the last 10 to 60 million years, because that was the time range we were studying.
3: I tell you what. Why don't we listen to some of these uh, uh, laughing uh, simians? We have some short clips of the species you studied here. I'll play the chimp and then a bonobo. What what should we listen for for these two? Uh,
7: this particular recording has a panting chimpanzee laughter.
3: Okay. Well, here, here's a chimp laughing. <laughs> Well, Marina, I, I hear short breaths. It's sort of like a you know, a steam engine sound there, but no, no vocalization. It's all kind of breathy. Is that right?
7: Well, it is a vocalization. The vocal folds are vibrating, but it sounds more breathy. This means that the, the vocal folds are just not used in a very regular, stable manner, but they are being used.
3: All right. Well, let's listen to the bonobo. <laughs> I sort of hear clicking like sounds there. I mean, you know, if you just played that recording for me, I'm, I'm, I think it was birds or something. How do you even know that that was a laugh?
7: Well, based on the the analysis we used, and it's also important to note that evolution doesn't work only on um, showing similarities across certain displays or across certain contexts. You should expect certain changes to occur over millions of years. And our results showed that the acoustics changed in a very consistent pattern. And for instance, the voicing occurred more often or there was more structure within the calls. So it's important also to keep that in mind and not just similarities.
3: Well, I can understand that we shouldn't just, you know, say, look, if it doesn't sound like us, it's probably mm-hmm. not a laugh. But, I mean, clearly there was some context here. Uh, these are the sounds they made every time you would tickle them. Is is that mm-hmm. the deal? Yes, yes. Oh, and by the way, where do you tickle them? In the rib cage or, you know, just in case I ever have to make some <laughs> some simian's laugh, where should I tickle them?
7: Well, uh, just everywhere you want to. It has to be a very natural um social situation. But they were particularly ticklish in their armpits or uh, around the necks. Some showed their feet to be tickled, and it seemed like everybody had a, a certain preference.
3: Okay, well, we've got two more here. We've got the gorilla. Oh, I hear a bit of snorting in there. It sounds like <laughs> kind of snorting. Shortness of breath, I don't know. Why don't we play the orangutan? Here's the orangutan. Okay, well, that's sort of a snort as well, although I have to say, Marina, if someone made this sound in front of me at a party, I'd probably think they were being rude. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that I would gauge that they were laughing.
7: Yeah, when we think about human laughter, we usually think about this very melodic, ha-ha kind of laughter, and other researchers have found that uh, laughter is not only produced in that way, we, humans can produce also laughter, grunt like, and pant-like.
3: This is an interesting study, Verena, because I I suspect if you were to ask, you know, somebody in the streets, do you think animals laugh, they, they'd probably tell you that, well, I think my dog laughs, or uh, uh, maybe my parrot occasionally laughs. But I mean, there's something really profoundly interesting here, because it seems that laughter is something we inherited from a common ancestor. How far back do you think laughter goes?
7: It's difficult to to answer that question. From our study, we we can say it's at least 10 to 16 million years old, but it could be older than that, much older or a little bit older. It's very difficult to to say that.
3: Okay, so uh, the big question. What's the function of laughter? I mean, you know, we, we our behavior tends to be related to something that has survival value for us. And since we share this particular trait, it seems, with, with other primates, you know, what's in it for them to laugh?
7: Well, laughing and, and play behavior is very important for forming social bonds and maintaining these bonds. And for social mammals, this is likely to be uh, important to you.
3: So for social bonds, I mean there are people who think that the fact that homo sapiens arose was because of the fact that we're social creatures, we had to learn how to get along with one another in groups and clearly if you were smart enough to figure out what the guy next to you might do next, you know, you, that might give you some survival advantage or some advantage in mating that would lead to a survival advantage and so forth. So you're saying it was just a something to sort of lubricate social interaction?
7: Well, it definitely would support social interactions, it would support cooperative interactions, and not only this can be important for humans, uh, various mammals have to interact with individuals from their group in, in different kinds of contexts.
3: Well, I have to say that this is certainly a fun subject. Is tickling the only way to make an ape laugh? I mean, it sounds like a setup to a joke. You know, did you hear the one about the, the, the ape that slipped on a banana peel or something? Do apes, you know, sit around and tell jokes? Do they tickle one another? Do they try and make one another laugh?
7: Well, they tickle one another. Tickling is an important part of social play in apes. But also in rough play, when they're chasing one another in, in play behavior, they are laughing also.
3: Very interesting. They, they, they truly go ape, at least. Uh, they, they have a good laugh every now and again. Uh, Marina Davila-Ross, I want to thank you so much for talking with me.
4: Thank you, Seth. Marina Villa ross is a biologist at the University of Portsmouth in the U.K. To see a video of a gorilla being tickled and laughing, go to our blog, are we a blog at SETI.org. And that's it for our show.
3: And we'd like to thank Homo sapiens Barbara Vance. And Gary
4: Niederhoff for their help with the program.
3: Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, whose mission is to understand life on this planet, including hominid life, of course, as part of its search for intelligence elsewhere in the universe.
4: You've been listening to part one of our two-part series on what makes us human. We've been talking about our relationship to others. In part two, next week, a look at genes and adaptability.
1: No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.